0: think anybody who is trying to build an audience like assume I assume it's going to be in a niche whatever that niche or industry or whatever that is I encourage people to really double down on that theme and really focus on creating content for that because for the first like year or like almost a year that I started building an audience I will say actually maybe more like six six or so months for six or so months I've only tweeted about marketing okay, got this I did it maybe like once or twice a day, so I didn't do it. I didn't tweet all day, but I would focus on very high school to noise. I could And post only on marketing. And the reason I did that is because, you know, you think about all the impressions people get on social, like all the crap that people see on social media, there's a lot of stuff. So people are going to need to see you like 10, 20, 30 times writing about the same thing before they realize, oh, I know Amanda, she's a marketing person. So then that becomes the importance in doubling down that niche because people will start to understand why they should follow you.
1: Welcome to Ad Creative, a new show from Pencil about the unexpected ideas that have changed the game for DDC founders and operators with a focus on actionable takeaways. I'm Chase Moseni from the Pencil team. Thanks for joining us. My guest today is Amanda Natividad, who is the VP of Marketing at SparkToro, in this episode, we talk about her early days at culinary school, her rise as a creator and how she built an audience, how everyone deals with imposter syndrome, no matter how big their audience, and how focusing on a niche can turn into your superpower. And the best part for me, she teaches us what a spiky take is. I love talking to Amanda. hope you enjoy it. Thanks for joining us, Amanda.
0: Yeah. Thank you for having
1: me. I want to know a little bit about Taro and everyone, uh, for everyone to know what you guys do before. But I just want to tell a one personal story about how Amanda and I got connected. She posted something about the formula shortage going on in the country. And I commented and very quickly she DM'd me and had probably the most sweet and human response that I could ever expect, which is, do you need help? And so... Just before all of we go into tactics and everything, thank you for being a lovely human being.
0: Thank you for saying that, especially with this, form, this infant formula shortage. It's been a problem for parents. I think I, I'm not going to get in soapbox about this, yeah. just for the context and why that's significant is for people who don't, who don't have babies in their lives. You can't just give a baby cow's milk. You can't just give them almond milk. That has to be formula. And on top of that, they, most babies can't take just any formula. A lot of babies have allergies or sensitive stomachs, just food sensitivities. So usually parents will need to try a couple of different formulas to figure out which one best agrees with our kid's stomach. And one of the most affected formulas in the shortage was called Alimentum, which is for babies who have severe allergies. And so they yeah. which means they need Alimentum specifically. They can't just get something else. The shortage was like, I think the out of stock rate was like over 50 it's been yeah. over 50% yeah. when normal times 10% yeah. and people, and if you go to like, last thing I'll say, no. the American Academy of Pediatrics website, their advice for what to do in this is go to your doctor's office, ask around. There's no real advice beyond yeah. to keep trying. But yeah. and It's wild to me, absolutely wild.
1: We actually, so our son was allergic to, God, I can't even remember it now, but nutrigen. And so then we had to go to Alimental. But we needed the pre-made and actually we called and the one that wasn't affected, the powder was affected, but pre-made wasn't affected. So actually pre-made one ended up being our cheat code because everyone was bothered by the powder. So no one was buying the liquid one. So we called and checked and like, yeah, none of the liquid had been affected. So it ended up being the interesting one. We talked to our doctors, everyone was like, yeah, liquid's not affected. My big thing when we were talking originally on this before I jumped into everything else was. How's everyone like, else doing it? We're all lucky enough to have a job the, the ability to afford this inflationary pricing, but some of these things that were bucks are now fifteen. Oh
0: yeah, and then the other thing I'd say is like, if you are a parent in need, I don't know, go to your local Facebook parenting group because yeah. I bet you without, without even looking, I bet you there are dozens or hundreds of of women who are producing extra milk who are just yeah. saying, "Yep, come on by." Just yeah. Pay me back by bringing the extra clean bag and yeah
1: seriously yeah seriously absolutely yeah that's i've seen that kind of go up and then all those moms who are doing that god bless you it's amazing um, it's literally amazing. yeah amazing so most horrible segue what does spark toro do what do you there? <laughs> <laughs> speaking of yeah shortages
0: of work, yeah. yeah that's all about work it's yeah. so a spark toro at spark toro We essentially create MarTech tools and our main tool, we have a couple of free tools where you can do fake follower audits, check your Spark score, which is the overall engagement of your Twitter account. We even have something called SparkToro trending. So if you want to see which marketing topics or blog posts are trending in in marketing, you can check that out. But our main tool provides audience research. So we help people find their audience's true sources of influence. What does that mean exactly? It really just means Helping you find the podcasts that your audience listens to, the social accounts they follow, websites they frequent, YouTube channels they subscribe to. And you can basically turn all these into lists. Like one way to look at it too is if you ever wanted to, if you Google top 100 content marketers, the best way to actually find that is through SparkToro. You find people who are talking about content marketing or who have it in their bio and then you run that search. And that's the best way to find the data validated way of finding these types of people, right? Where normally something like top one hundred content marketers, right, top fifty more tech tools, that's all created by human beings with biases, political agendas, or even not political agendas, but some kind of personal agenda of like, oh, I want to look at my friends, or oh, I don't like this person. They're not. I'm not going to include them in my post. Things like that. We we don't we don't do that. what <laughs> we provide that. We validate the data based on publicly available website behavior.
1: Yeah, it's super interesting. I think everyone should be using this to understand their audience more. The like through line through every single conversation that I have um, is understanding of your audience is kind of the, it sounds crazy, but people are saying, oh, it's the new cheat code. Like, Wasn't that always a cheat code, but it seems that in a world where we have to be more focused on understanding our audience, because paid marketing is not going to be as easy as it was say two, three years ago, in terms of those audiences, like understanding how a person consumes content. It's the same thing as saying, Hey, Chase likes Biori or something. He's part of that, like group that is wearing those pieces of pieces of clothing. So I think that's really cool. And so your VP of marketing there. What does that kind of encompass overall? What do you, you like, do you grow content and everything? Or is it just more on the branded content side of things?
0: Yeah, so it's a little, it's kind of everything. The unique thing about us is that I would say that all of our marketing is, it's organic. Right? I'm not going to say free or earned, that doesn't seem quite right. But I call it organic because it's based, on, essentially, how do I say this more efficiently? I'll say our marketing strategy is essentially organic marketing. and. Where we, I think, as a little startup, have some kind of strange competitive advantage is that the co-founder, Ram Fishkin, and myself, we both have built-in audiences. So this is one of the very few instances where a founding team has launched with, I could say, tens of thousands of followers or potential fans. And so we do most of our marketing for them. And that includes things like regular old blog post, right? Not really with an SEO driven strategy. So we're not looking for high volume, low competition keywords. We are writing about the things that we find interesting, like ways to improve your overall marketing strategy, ways to think about startup leadership, the things that people might not necessarily be searching for, but are probably interesting to people in the more sort of intermediate to advanced marketing and startup ecosystem. So that's one. We also do a lot of marketing to email lists. So we do an email newsletter. It has over 40,000 subscribers now. has a pretty healthy open rate. And we also do these regular SparkToro office hours. So our office hours are these presentations on marketing strategy where it just so happens that you can use SparkToro to put out the strategy, to adapt the strategy, or to make your strategy better. So past examples that we've past have done have been on cold outreach, right? How do you do really good cold outreach? I think that's a fun topic because that, that is something people are searching for, but everybody has their own strategy for doing it. I have my own strategy for doing it, which I explained in office hours and then incorporated how you would use the Sparkoro tool set to, to help you do that. Uh, we've also done things on how agencies and consultants can create better pitches for their clients. And then the one I have coming up just in a couple of days Or by the time this podcast goes out, it'll have passed, but I have one coming up on audience persona.
1: I'll send you this article actually, but it's a thing called the adjacent user theory. So it's essentially what you're talking about, which is you have your core user, but then you have all of these other people who could be in market, but maybe they're only 25% of how you're marketing now. So you have to test different kind of like, you either have different personas and, or have a different way to communicate with them because they either can help your core buyer do something, or they can become buyers in their own way, because maybe they have their own use case for the product later on. But if you're not focused on them, you'll never be able to bring in those people that are incremental over time outside of the core audience, which has an upward bound. So I want to go back a little bit. I was looking at your, I was looking at your bio and I think there was some really fun stuff and I wanted to talk a little bit about it. So obviously you started out in editorial at the beginning, and then you went to Le Cordon Bleu. And so... I'm very curious, those two things synthesize so content. And I think cooking is a microcosm for everything. I really believe the same thing with gardening, right? Like you're doing something very specific with a lot of tender care that has to be scientific at the beginning, and then it becomes artistic. And I think marketing is very scientific and then you add some humanity into it. It becomes a little more artistic over time. And so I'm curious how those early experiences shaped how you look at the entire gamut of what you guys do in organic and content? I
0: appreciate the question. This is interesting to think there because I agree with you. I feel like marketing is very much is science, but there's also it's there's also the interplay with art. Maybe the way I would think about how I see marketing like through that lens of my career path is in my journalism days, what I worked at, I worked at a couple of tech news sites like paidcontent.org and Com. And then I also worked at a women's healthy living site called LifeScript. I think it was acquired by Everyday Health, so I don't think they're around anymore. But that kind of informed my that has largely informed my approach to content marketing, which is providing helpful content to people who are searching for it. And especially with regards to helping people or helping people with high quality content, like original research or backed up research. Maybe it's validated with interviews in the field, or it's validated by finding and pairing together multiple studies of a similar finding, and also just doing it through the lens of really trying to help people. And that's not at odds with SEO, right? Ideally in SEO, that's what you're doing. That's how you rank for things. But I think if you aren't trained or don't have any kind of training in how to create high quality, objective, Objectively good or objectively validated content. You, it's a lot harder to get into SEO or content marketing. So that's one approach. And then as far as the cooking experience goes, I went to the Corn Blue. I think I, what I learned there had to, had much to do with resilience and thick skinnedness I think I don't know that I'm the most thick skinned person now. Maybe I'm. Pretty, maybe i more thick skinned than I think, but. In, in culinary school, I mean, whatever you see in those cooking shows where people are getting yelled at and they're yelling at each other, that's like, that's kind of true. I mean, that actually does happen. And I think, I do think part of it is upholding the stereotype that people get excited about that and do it in the real world. But where it's valid or where it's real is in the kitchen, you are operating against very tight timeline. It's got to make, got to peel those Brussels sprouts, but you've got to do them in 30 minutes. You got to you gotta saute that fish, got to do it right. It'll only take you like six minutes to cook, to properly cook a fish. And these are things that need to happen very quickly. And you're serving people who are hungry. So you can imagine everyone's running around, things are moving fast. Things are hot, knives are sharp. And so people will yell at each other. And, and so there's that piece, right? Not, ha- not having to get over that, having to just yell at people and I'm right behind you. You got to keep moving. <laughs> there's and there's also just getting immediate feedback from your chef instructor who will look at the lobster bisque you just made and lift it up with a spoon and be like, This is terrible soup and I know it because this is too thin it's not even coating the spoon. Do it again. Like you need to fix this. Or or they don't even taste it. They'll just look at it and they'll be like, I know this tastes like shit. Nope. I'm not eating this. You're getting it you're getting a C plus today. And that's the kind of stuff that when you hear that and in that moment. You have to just accept it, right? There's no room to, be, hey, chef, I think there's room for you to be a little more polite in your messaging, right? Like, you have to be like, oh, that's and, and when it comes to food, right, bad food is bad food. That's just how it is. You got to just learn from it, learn how to make it better and move on. So that's something that I learned in my culinary day, which is getting quick feedback, Learning how to iterate on it quickly, learning how to move on, process it, and just keep going. So that's helped a lot.
1: <laughs> Do you think, so this is a fu- this is a funny one, because in the market today, you have to be a lot more careful with how you communicate with people and kind. And these are not, these things are not wrong. They're fantastic. I wonder if people in culinary school are afraid of getting canceled now more than they all were. Because like, you can't yell at people that much anymore. I had a football coach and he told me, I don't want to coach anymore. Because I can't coach young men the way I used to be able to coach them. And I feel like I'm doing them a disservice. So I'd rather not do it and feel like it's antithetical to my own philosophy. So I'm curious, do you think that is something that uh, chefs who are teaching have to deal with now
0: today? I think so. Like, I wonder if that applies more in school type settings than real world settings, because the other thing that we talked about or learned about in school was the importance of politeness, where Our chef instructors, I would say they were, they, while they were very willing to provide harsh feedback, they were also very careful not to say anything pejorative. Like they weren't, nobody said, no, no chef instructor ever said anything to me. Women can't cook or like women can't do. I've never, I had never heard any semblance of that. It was a straight up, your food is terrible today. Or like this dish is bad and you need to fix this. So that at least was harsh feedback to the specific thing. It wasn't, oh, you're terrible. It wasn't like, oh, like you, you, you don't make good food or yeah. oh, like you don't do this. It was this, these eggs, I asked you to make them over easy. These are over hard. Yeah. You did a bad job. So yeah. Yeah. there is a specificity there. Yeah. Totally. And the other thing too is something we talked about in culinary school was are the, chef instruct- are the chefs on TV, are they like that in the kitchen? And a couple of my instructors said, and one great example of this, Gordon Ramsay. Yeah. He shows, he says terrible insults. You as the viewer in the peanut gallery can laugh about it in the kitchen looks sad. But a lot of my instructors said, you think he's like that in real life? No way. Nobody's going to work for a person who's like that in real life. That's what on TV. And they like, I guarantee you, he doesn't treat people like that in real life. I don't know if that would or, be organized with him. But I do wonder about it. I do think now like he probably is handing it up for TV. And
1: 100 percent Yeah. If you look at some he has a couple, he has like show on Discovery. He has this master class, he has obviously his like his Instagram. He's lovely in all of them. Mm-hmm. Very kind, very respectful. And then he just goes, This is the this is the, my character on this show that people want to see. Yeah. And so yeah, he, he definitely plays his part. Yeah, that's I think the reason I brought up the cooking was like there are so many different things you can learn from cross training, and so what I've found with a lot of the founders or operators I've talked to is there's like this interesting intersection with, hey, I'm a career marketer, but I have learned other things and skill sets that allowed me to think a little more holistically about the business in general and have different experiences. So that's why I brought that up. What what do you ascribe? Being able to grow your audience because I think this is something you see a lot of people writing threads and doing different things. But I find when I engage with your content, whether it's your newsletter or through through Twitter, is it's very first of all there's a lot of tactical stuff that people can use, but there's also like a huge dash of humanity that essentially I think allows people a window in so that they almost enjoy your your content marketing like feedback or content that you're sharing. And I guess what has been your strategy there because I think it's exactly. How you've been able to grow your help Spark Toro grow the business? We talked about with the other founder, and so what's been your strategy there? And how long has it taken you to grow that? I
0: appreciate that. I guess I would I look at this as having two strategies in building an audience. One, it is getting in like net new followers or subscribers, getting filling the top of your funnel, and then from there, I think about how do I build affinity with these people or strengthen my reputation. So I really think of it as both as like a how do I get people in the door how do I get them to stay at my table <laughs> so to speak so a lot of my a lot of my social media my, my social media growth my twitter growth I grew from I think a thousand to something like 60,000 or 70,000 in about a year I'm approaching I'm hoping to get to a hundred thousand uh have managed what we see You're close. and a lot of that I hope so yeah. it's a silly goal someone else had tweeted like several months ago, like challenging Amanda to hit 100,000 by June. And I'm like, dang it, I never forgot that tweet. So I'm going to see if I can hit my goal. Anyway, that's boring. But I think about the raw growth, like how I brought in new followers. That came in largely through Twitter threads and figured out how to create compelling threads, compelling content that gets people to read it and them to the stay. And then follow me at the end. So that's definitely helped. And then, in doing that, though, that's also raised my profile and my niche where more people became aware of me as a marketer. And I think anybody who is trying to build an audience like assume I assume it's gonna to be in a niche, whatever that niche or industry or whatever that is, I encourage people to really double down on that niche and really focus on creating content for that because for the first like, year or like almost a year that I started building an audience I will say actually maybe more like six six or so months for six or so months i only tweeted about marketing that was it I did it maybe like once or twice a day so I didn't do it I didn't tweet all day but I would focus on a very high signal to noise I could and post only on marketing and the reason I did that is because And you think about all the impression people get on social, like all the crap that people see on social media. There's a lot of stuff. So people are going to need to see you like 10, 20, 30 times writing about the same thing before they realize, oh, I know Amanda, she's a marketing person. So then that becomes the importance in doubling down that niche because then people will start to understand why they should follow you. Or then they're like, oh, okay, she writes about marketing. I got it. I want marketing advice. I'll follow her. So then that becomes what you're known for. But then after that, as you build that steady following, get your work and your content scene, then you could also think about uh, building affinity. And it can build affinity in a number of ways, right? There's no right or wrong way to do that, really. It's whatever works. For me, I wanted to figure out, like, I want, after I doubled down on my niche, I wanted to then double down on on my uniqueness, like the intersection of my expertise, my interests, and my core values. So what's that right in the middle? And for me, part of that is food. I love making cooking or baking more accessible to people. I like sharing the things, the original recipes that I've made of. I like being able to, I don't know, educate people on different kinds of cuisine. Not like I'm the expert in all the different ethnicities, cuisines, but I like the idea of being able to show people who are not korean i'm not korean but i don't show them how to make really good bulgogi like those things i think make the world a better place where learning becomes easier people can learn more things people can step outside their comfort zones and they get to do it in a very palatable way like i think that makes the world a better place do i think it's the most noble mission probably not everybody has their strengths but that's where i have seen like where i've build affinity and by the way I, it's not as strategic i have not been as strategic as i made that sound just now it sounds like i was thinking like here here's the venn diagram you're right in the middle i'm going to do this cooking thing what actually ha- that's how i rationalize it today what actually happened was i love cooking i have expertise in it i make up new recipes all the time and i have this newsletter wouldn't it be fun if i just share these recipes with people rather than doing an SEO-driven food blog where I'm trying to rank for best bulgogi, going to rank for that. And that's okay. There are going to be a lot of beautiful food blogs who can do that. And that's awesome for them. What I'm doing is just sending it to people's inboxes and being like, if you want to try this, you should. And if you don't, delete this email.
1: (laughs) So we talked about two things I think are really interesting. And what I'm really curious about with regards to growing from six months, 1,000 to 50 or 60,000 is you're putting out all this content. You've been doing the good work of building your expertise over a decade plus. Was there any sort of imposter syndrome that you dealt with trying to put out this content and say, Hey, follow me. Cause I know I can lead you to a new place. Or was it like, Hey, this is just something I need to do because there is it's important to be confident in yourself. But I think there's a lot of people who stop themselves from posting stuff because I'm like, no one wants it. I have to say or read what I have to say so was that something that kind of came up for you at all during the process
0: oh my gosh yes I think anybody who doesn't know me who just follows me who's happened who's happening to listen to this are probably like no way she has imposter syndrome everybody who knows me well will say oh my god she has the worst imposter syndrome I've ever seen <laughs> um I definitely have i still do even right now even when i even when i'm selling my content marketing 201 course i am in the back of my head and screaming are you sure you deserve to do this so there is definitely but i will say the things that have helped me get past that is what i've you know connected with a lot of other creators and believing in people when they believe in you. So the first door to that was a boss I had a couple years ago, Nat Eliason. He founded the SEO agency called Growth Machine. And most people today would probably know him as just a super talented writer. He's now into crypto and Web3, but like super legit. Great guy. But when I joined Growth Machine to run marketing for them, he had been the face of the brand. He was looking for someone else to take that on. And the way that he very readily believed in me gave me a lot of hope. The way that he was like, "Oh yeah, like <laughs> this might sound ridiculous to say," and I'm not comparing myself to this person in any way, but I appreciated the confidence when Matt said to me, "Have you heard of David Perrell? Like, let's do that, but for marketing." And I know that he wasn't being he wasn't being unfairly like or like, reductive or just or he wasn't trying to diminish the work. What I what he was getting at was more of you're qualified to do this. You're more than qualified. You should do this. Go for it. And that really stuck with me. So that was one. And then along the way it was also connecting with other creators. I eventually joined David Perel's covert-based course, right of passage, where I met a lot of other really amazing writers, got to learn how to write online and like just what that's like and getting over that imposter syndrome and getting to that point of where you are comfortably getting feedback from your friends and peers and making your writing better and then publishing it. Right? Like that was really impactful. For me. And then the other one I did was I also did an audience building course through Maven that was at the time that was taught by Sahil Bloom and Julian Shapiro. Um, and that really helped me a lot in terms of writing stronger hooks for my threads. So all these things are really impactful for me. And these were all people who in their own ways believed in me and were like, you can do this and you're qualified. The other thing too is what I also believed, especially about social media and top these top of final channels, is what you will you will receive what you put out there. You will get what you attract what you give. And I think if I know that there are exceptions and sometimes haters gonna hate and that happens and then but I think if you stick to if you stick to the things that you know well, so I only write about what I know, what I have observed very deeply or keenly in the field, what I have experienced, what I've tested a bunch of times. That's what I write about. You'll never see me write a thread about here's how to get rich in crypto as if I know the ins and outs of Web3. I don't. So I want I stick with what I know. But two, what the other piece is I keep my messaging and, gen- and online behavior inclusive and positive, right? Like if... Like I can sense when someone is maybe trolling me on one of my tweets. And like when well, I, I can tell it's hard to, it's hard to put my finger on it, but I can tell when someone actually does want to have an honest discussion or they have a question versus when they want to try not a gotcha or a ha you I just ignore those. Um, I don't even block them. I don't need them. I just ignore them. But I think that goes a long way because over time people will see I don't interact with that. I don't, play the mean games and try to put anyone down and so people don't put me down that not really happens but like at this point I don't even really notice it because I really try to just focus on supporting other people and expressing gratitude for the people who support me.
1: Yeah that's great I think this is something I've been seeing like it's almost this split even just in Twitter in general is there's this Real lovely group of positive people who just want to help people up and essentially rising tide, let's salt boats kind of thing. By the way, epic, huge mug. I just saw this, <laughs> this um, massive said spark Taro, Anyone listening? We, yeah, we'll DM you for swag. Yeah, I think there's it's a really important thing to call out, which is people can tell what tribe you're attracting. So focusing on your niche, like you said, delivering value and, and staying positive always attracts the right people. By the way, this isn't just even an Twitter, right? This is across your business, your business associates, your personal associates. You you are the, your tribe is the energy that you let out is the people that you attract. So I've been in different places in my life where it's a more negative place or bad place when I was younger. And just those people seem to float around. And the minute you cast that thing all good stuff starts happening over time. But yeah, I really appreciate you, you calling that out. So I always have a funnel, and I'm always curious with this about marketing, especially when people like, come from cultures that maybe don't understand it as well. And so what do your parents think that you do? Do they understand content marketing at all? Because mine, whenever I tell them, like, hey, I work in B2B SaaS with AI, they're like, uh, it, in my best Persian accent, team said B2B SaaS. They don't really understand what AI does. And you're like, well, you use algorithms all day. So I'm curious what they think uh, of, uh, of your, uh, of what you've been doing all this time.
0: I didn't get of it. I will tell two anecdotes that my dad would tell you everything. One was my dad asked, so if I know your company name, and if I type that into Google, if I go to Google, right? Google is, you know what that is? Yes. If you go to Google, I type in your name. What is that name? SparkToro. Okay. If I type it in and I hit enter, because I have to search, I hit enter. Like, yes. He's like, will I see your company name? Will I see your website? And I was like, yes. And he was like, it's good. Like, that's so good. <laughs> so that's one. The other thing was when I tried to explain content marketing to him, he like, said, tell me what this content marketing is. I'm like, okay. Was he, he's like, what is content? i was like, okay, a blog post. That's content, a blog post. He was like, nope, in layman's terms, please. <laughs> so i like, okay, let me let me think about this. So they don't get it. Yeah. My, my mom probably gets a little bit more. Yeah. I think my mom probably knows enough to know what she doesn't know. Yeah. She, she knows I don't do like advertising. Yeah. I don't do a lot of paid marketing. Yeah. I think she just, okay, you're a social media person.
1: Yeah. Sure. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Let's go with that.
1: When I said, yeah, we just make paid ads. They're like, oh, so the ads I see on Facebook. I'm like, yes, our system makes that type. A system? What is a system? Nothing. It's just paid ads. We make them. am like, okay, that's very interesting. My mom, she gets it a lot better. And it's funny because my dad's company, that paid ads, but he has no, idea. he's focused on manufacturing and sales. So he has no idea what that is like someone else does that. That's not my province. And so, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's super funny, but it's pretty cool actually to kind of having to explain it every single time. Like, do you do a So I,
0: Do you pay the ads and then you upload them?
1: Like, yeah. I was like, you, if I made them for every customer we had, I literally would not sleep ever. I'm always, uh, I'm always fascinated by hacks uh, and the reason is I don't believe in any hacks at all. I think it's like, just work at it. And there are things that you can find that optimize more quickly based on a certain thing you found, but essentially like just hard work and figuring things out that work for the brand specifically. What things in content marketing right now do you think are overhyped in terms of hacks?
0: Oh, it's gonna be a spiky, a spiky take here, but I think at this point today, what word June, 2022? I think threads are becoming are hitting that saturation point. I think it's going to be a lot harder to grow an audience on Twitter based on threads because there are so many of them now. Everybody's doing them and it's getting harder and harder to stand out from the noise.
1: It's funny too, because people write these books and people are getting good at the books, but it's almost been homogenized now. Get this and I'll give you this. Just... Tell me that I'm going to learn something and I don't need to follow you and retweet for the value. So yeah. do.
0: Well, there's 2 billion tweets are sent every day. But you're reading all the wrong ones. Here are five tweets that are actually worth your time.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What do you, so what do you tell, what do you tell founders who are thinking about this? Because there's a few different kind of ways that people look at growth, right? There's product-led growth. There's, there's community-led growth. There's customer-led growth. And then there's content-led growth. If someone says, hey, Amanda, I think content is going to be the thing that is sets us apart. But like they just said, there's two billion tweets sent today. There's all these SEO blogs that are ranking higher for you in the keywords that you need, they said, like, oh, we can rank high in this keyword." It's like no one cares about it. No one's searching for that. For instance, like we are the number one ranked for creative AI. No one searches for creative AI. That's not a thing. People search ads <laughs> and so it's like, okay, oh, creative AI, maybe in five years that matters, but today for meaningful growth based on content. That doesn't matter at all. So said something earlier, which is, look, just need to provide value, but we do have a baked in audience that allows us to do that. And so I'm curious how you would structure that for them in terms of content. And does that have to do a lot of with building something that can drive word of mouth? Yeah,
0: that's a great, it's a great example of creative AI. I just want to sit in this for a moment because that's a great example of something that is valuable, interesting, unique. Nobody's searching for. I haven't even done the keyword research, but I believe you, I would never search for creative AI. But nope. would I potentially want a solution? For yeah. Because I, I see it as like, how can I improve my copywriting? How can I do it faster or wh- whatever that is? I might not search for fast copywriting either. Uh, some people might. But I probably wouldn't. So I guess how would I approach growth in terms of like content product community? I guess I would think about if, if you, as the founder, or head of marketing like the person who is setting the foundation for the future for the future team i would really think about what's your unique competitive advantage that like most people are not that good at but you are really good at and then see if you can build a strategy based on that so it could be like that and also figure out the intersection with what does your company actually need right because if you are really really let's say, excellent at ad paid ads or doing a paid social media post and stuff. That's a great skill set to have. But if your product is like a B2B SaaS tool, that might not be the best path for growth. And in, in that particular pairing might not be. Wrong. But my hunch as someone who's worked in B2B SaaS for a while is that the, be- the stronger play is some kind of thought leadership content marketing. That's pretty big and very buzzwordy, right? Thought leadership content marketing. Because that could mean, it could still mean anything. That could mean, that could mean a blog, could mean a newsletter, could be a podcast. It could even be like a conference or event series. Like Those are all types of content. And like maybe one of those is what you're really good at. And maybe you have the budget for it. And maybe your company's well positioned for it. That's one way I would look at it. I also think it's really interesting when companies build communities as a source of growth. The challenge there is that communities are a lot of work, a lot of work to get people engaged. To get people participating and everything. And that tends to only really work for mission driven things. What would, could be a DDC product, right? If your DDC product is very mission driven, but like we're, we're seeing it work well in crypto is very mission driven, right? Like people want to find a new system that's not really a system for exchanging products, services, money, right? Like crosses the board. So those are, that's like a very mission driven area. So it makes sense that it lends itself well to community. However, it's probably really hard to track the ROI of that. Yeah, and I just go back to my original thought of find the intersection of what you are really good at as a business leader and what your business actually needs and building the strategy around that, which might be content marketing, might be community, might be product-led growth. And by product-led growth, I'm going to call that like designing a product that has viral loops baked into it and viral loop doesn't have it doesn't mean your product goes viral it's not that it's a loop that sort of feeds itself it's self-sustaining things like how like slack is product-led growth in that your experience with slack gets better the more people you invite to it same the venmo paypal the experience gets better when you have more friends on it who you can exchange money with like things that like those things grow like Those are product led growth things. And you can even do, you can even apply some of those principles to areas in which it doesn't really depend on one to one interactions. My favorite one from Dropbox was that if you complete, if you were a Dropbox user, I don't know if they do anymore, but if they used to, if you were a new Dropbox user and you did the onboarding process and if you completed it, they would gift you with additional storage space. So that was something that was like, it doesn't encourage you to invite more users. Not necessarily unless you were to send it to a friend and tell them about it, but that's probably very unlikely. But what it does is it, it enhances your experience as a user and it increases your retention. So those are some ways that I would think about growth.
1: Yeah, two that I love, those are great examples. Two that I love is Loom has a really great product-led growth motion where essentially you record a video and you send it and someone else sees the loom and like shit, I should use this too. I can send something back. And they built in some other hooks where you can respond to a video with another video. So if someone isn't using it, they can respond to the link. It points to them responding. If they don't have something already, they're very brilliant. Another one I realized is there's this software called Crips. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's a noise kids, like software, which I recommend to all parents to get. It's incredible. Best noise least software I've ever used. So I'll send you a link after this, but essentially they give you 240 minutes before you buy for free to use. So you're using it. So like I've had it where. I'll be sitting in a room with my son on the call and he's playing or listening to Coco, some shit and no one knows he's there because it's cut out all back right. except for my voice, you do that. You're like sent bucks for a whole year. I'll buy that. No question. And I'll tell everyone else about it because it's giving me so much value. And yeah, I think definitely you could have to think about those things and how, what's your thing that can make you special. It should be based on your product. I think it's frankly, it works for D 2 C as well. I think uh, G. Has a lot of like, it's an outgrowth of D2C a little bit, which is it's very customer driven. So, for instance, D2C companies now they focus on their audiences, what they need, and like the products that serve them best. The best ones, a lot of them, they're sprayed prey mentality, but like that customer centricity has pervaded over the last, I would say, two, two and a half years, moved into B2B where it was a big focus at the, like the early stages of DDC. Now, I think both things have intertwined. And so the way B2B has been for a while has now invaded some of the DTC world and kind of vice versa, but yeah, I think it's really important to think about those things. So I'm going to move to the last little bit. I used to call it rapid fire, but I don't do rapid fire. I'm very low winded and I ask long winded questions. So I, I have my last few, where do you think so specifically about content marketing? Where do you think the industry goes next? There's a lot of tools out there that people are using, but what's your big idea, or you said threads are becoming oversaturated. What's the, what's your spiciest take on where content marketing is going in the future?
0: I think the bar for content is just getting higher, right? The longer that internet exists, the more content there is, and the more work that creators and the broad designs creators have to do is do the work to stand out. And so... I think people can do that in a number of ways. There's the comprehensive guide route, right? Can you write the most comprehensive, helpful thing on a topic that teaches someone how to do something? That could be a good for an SEO play. You could also think about it: what is some original, what novelty? Like in terms of novelty, like true original, brand new information, can I provide? And that might be research, right? Like we've done this at SparkToro, right? You might people might have seen. And the news about there being a bunch of fake followers on Twitter, Elon Musk seems to have 70% fake followers, if you include inactive accounts and such. And we did some research, like we, we have a fake follower tool, yes, but we also did a really robust study of over something like over 45,000 foot profiles based on a methodology that we very clearly defined. We estimated about 20%, 20, 22% of, follow, of accounts on Twitter. Are fake. Fake as defined by a spin bot, or maybe it's, no, inactive was different. But anyway, it, it doesn't mean that these are all malicious, right? They're thing as a good bot, like something like the tech name Twitter account. That's probably a bot. But they with it, right? And they, they provide breaking news and tech. That's not bad. But it's also probably not a human being who runs it. They're not posting it day to day. It's just some kind of feed. So that's one way, right? Stand out with original research. Maybe a third way is the unique point of view, like that intersection of what you're good at, what you're experienced in, what people care about and what your take is on that. Like maybe today, nobody wants to read a post on what is content marketing, but maybe somebody wants to read what is Rand Fishkin's thoughts on content marketing. Like that's different. Granted, you'd have to be someone like Rand Fishkin status to, <laughs> to get that kind of interest. But that's kind of what I mean. Uh, another way someone who- might not have a huge following could attract that kind of content marketing audience. It could be like ways B2B SaaS companies are kicking butt with content marketing and maybe it's a bunch of examples. So things that are, I think speak to need and get really like really niched down in a given area and like what that unique value prop is or original research, original, truly original and novel insights. I think that's what's next.
1: What I pull out is expertise, is back in Vogue and it's a really strange thing because I was we, we, I'm saying that and it's wasn't it always in Vogue but hot takes were in Vogue for a while where people just say stuff and shoot off the hip and it's no people want to know what people like what actual value you can provide to my life because in a world where we are 2 billion tweets 17 subscription services you got to cut through so that people know why not okay, yes, you have all of these things that we can learn, but why should I want to learn from you specifically? So you brought up those two classes. Julian and Sahil are brilliant guys. I want to learn from them. You brought that up. The other guy who I'll have to look up. David Perel. David Perel. You're calling him out. I want to learn from them. That cuts through. When you say, yeah, I took this course and it was good about content marketing. Okay. There's a bunch of courses that I could do there, but if you say, okay, this person has some sort of expertise and, or we're curating the expertise for you that cuts through for people. So I think that's expertise and niching down is a really good call out. I think it's just going to be more important for every brand going forward so that they can start there and then expand versus kind of what we've been doing, which is the inside out approach. It's almost going to be the inside or excuse me, the outside in approach to everything. It's going to almost be like reverse funnels going forward, which is the inside out. Yeah. So, yeah, I think
0: yep. that's I think so too. I want to add on to something you said about hot take. Yeah. I, I think it's such a good point. Hot takes were in for a while, but now they think it's about, it's not about spicy takes, it's about spiky takes. So here, I'll expand on that really quick. A spicy take is a hot take. It's maybe salacious for the sake of being salacious. It gets people to pay attention, makes their heads turn. What did you say? You said content marketing is dead, once, whatever that is. A spiky take, and this is something from, I didn't invent it. Wes Cow, the co founder of Maven, did. A spiky take is, a kill you're willing to die on. It's a claim you can defend. So it's not spicy for the sake of being spicy. It's not just content marketing is dead. It's content marketing is dying and here's why. Or I don't know, don't believe in that, but that could be something someone believes in. It's like this, it's this eye-catching hook or something that grabs you, but you have to defend it immediately. I think that's what people are looking for today.
1: I love the idea of of um having takes the hills you're willing to die on that they're going to be spicy, but it's, it's more towards the fact that you have, everything is rooted in data and perspective rather than just like Facebook ads or, or something else like that, which is categorically untrue. But this version of it, for instance, like we're talking about hot takes or threads, like there is proof that it has become homogenized and saturated to the point where it's not as impactful as it was a year ago or a year and a half ago. The last two questions are, where do you get your best ideas?
0: Where do I get my best ideas? I think I get my best ideas from the one to one interactions, whether it's private or on the timeline on Twitter, where people are asking me questions about, like, how do I do this thing? How would you approach this? It might sound obvious in that, wouldn't you just write about it? But there are times in which I don't even think or I haven't thought about codifying something in a certain way. And if someone has asked me, like the cold outreach thing. Like I think I think I complained to my boss, Rand, about the cold outreach thing. I think I, whatever it was, because like, it's so standing, I don't like it. He was like, well, how would you do it? And I was like, oh, I don't do cold outreach, but I have done it. Here's how I did it. So that's a good example of something that it might be obvious to other someone else to ask me, but it's never obvious to me because I don't see myself as a cold outreach expert. I don't really want to be the cold outreach expert, but do I have a strong point of view that I can defend on it? Yes. So
1: what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received?
0: Best piece of advice I've ever received? I don't. This stands. Out. I don't know if it's the best, but this stands out to me. It, like haunts my dreams to this day. <laughs> it was feedback I got from an old boss, and I laughed about it. But it was. I was also mortified when I heard it, and it helped. It's helped me. Which is, she told me, when you know what you're doing, it is so obvious. Like you are just leading the way. You're kicking butt. Like it's so clear to me. However, when you don't know what you're doing. It is so obvious. <laughs> it was the best feedback I got. I think I both, I think I gasped in embarrassment and also laughed. And she laughed too. And she meant it with love, right? You don't give that feed that kind of feedback to someone unless you care about them. But it stuck with me because it just made me realize, to some degree, the importance. To some degree, there's a benefit to when you're in the room to playing along and holding holding your car to your chest. There's an advantage to that, but it's also a good area of opportunity for me to think about, okay, when I don't know something, then I need to be more aware of it and I need to be more, I need to speak up more for to ask for help or to find more questions or whatever it is to improve. But that was my favorite kind of harsh feedback that I've gotten.
1: <laughs> I think, so the, the last one, and we'll, we'll close off on this, is what skill do you think has served you best in life? What
0: skill do I think has best served me in life? Ooh, that's a good question. I think it, here's what it is. This is pretty more like interpersonal. Yeah, I think It's my ability to treat people based on the way they have revealed themselves to be. So I always lead with trust. I am actually a very trusting person and very believe the best i believe in everybody's better angels i assume positive intent or someone made a mistake i assume it was just an honest mistake i always leave with that and i'm I'm really disappointed however if i am proven wrong or disappointed in some way i also won't forget that so if someone proves to me to be untrustworthy in some way i will act accordingly And then might just mean, okay, we're not close. Like, that's fine. (laughs) Or not, I don't need to support your business. That's okay. I would never publicly drag them for, unless there was like just deep malicious intent, which almost never happened. But I just mean, if a business or a person has proven themselves to be untrustworthy, then I ask for my money back and I move on forever and I will never work with that person again.
1: (laughs) I just want to say thank you for coming on and sharing today. How should people follow along with you?
0: why you really use Twitter and that Amanda tweet at me questions or comments. And my personal site is amandanat.com. That's where you can find info on in my content marketing 201 course, subscribe to my newsletter and even learn a little bit more about SparkToro.
1: Thanks for coming on today. Really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Chase. Let's see again.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Ad Creative from Pencil. We hope you enjoyed our chat and learned a thing or two that can help you grow your business and think more creatively. If you have someone you think we should interview, hit me up on Twitter. Also, a small favor. If you could please share and review this, we want to make sure as many people see this podcast and are able to learn from my guests as possible. Until next time, add some creativity into your life. Thanks.